What is up, doe? Welcome to another edition of the Pixel Roll Show, where we discuss the worst basketball team south of Philadelphia, your Washington Wizards. Hello, everyone. It is January 8th, 2016. This is Adam McGinnis. On this episode, I had a chance to interview uh, Jared Dubin, who is an uh, NBA writer for the Sports Illustrated. He wrote a really good piece on the Washington basketball team this week uh, called The Wizards of May. I talked to him about that. We get into all sorts of topics. It's always it's always good to get a national perspective of what's going on with this team as a fan, as someone who blogs about them and writes about them and obviously hosts a podcast about them. We get very, very close to the action, and, and it's good to s- sometimes step back and kind of see what other people think about the team that you follow so closely, especially when you actually respect their opinion, unlike some of the other shows that with their hot takes or some local media that just do stuff to drive narrative and clicks. So yes, it was a very uh, very fun conversation. He also c- contributed to a book about uh, Jeremy Lin and the, the whole insanity uh, thing from a few years ago. We, there's a Wizards connection, so I talked to him about that. It's uh, very interesting to get his perspective. So thank you everyone for continuing support of the show. I know it's been a rough season so far, but the numbers continue going up. So I guess this is maybe group therapy. I guess some more guests lined up. Hopefully, I can get Kyle after the, uh, the Packers beat the Redskins, uh, and we can maybe have a drunk podcast on Sunday night. But that's tentative. But I have a couple of uh, cool guests uh, lined up for next week. Once again, thanks. I appreciate it. Tell your friends, your family. Here's a conversation with uh, Jared Dubin. Hey, Jared, how, how are you doing? What's up, man? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy Friday. Uh, can you just tell the people a little bit your your background? I know you write for basically every publication uh, on the that you can get NBA coverage online, I believe. <laughs> yeah, um, right now most of my stuff is at uh, the Call Aldrin for uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, Police Report, and then for Sports Illustrated proper as well. Um, been covering the league, I guess now this is either the fourth or fifth season, and it's pretty bad that I can't remember. Um, uh, for for Grantland, ESPN, Bloomberg Sports, uh, a couple other sites that contributed uh, for the True Hoop Network, Hollywood Paroxysm, um, all of the Hollywood Paroxysm affiliated sites, which we have now. I helped uh, you know create and run that network, which is now run by Ian Levy. Um, Matt Moore sort of brought me along there, um, and then once I progressed doing all the different stuff that I'm doing now, I just didn't have time to, to really run it the way it should be run, and Ian's doing a great job over there now. Cool. Yeah, doesn't it feel like sometimes all the games and seasons and stuff kind of all mesh together after a while? Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, you know, the individual seasons, I can remember what happened within them in a the basketball sense, but not necessarily uh, in a sense of what I was doing at the time, um, just because it's all sort of, you know, you, think of it as being a long time but then you look up and it's only been you know four or five years or whatever you know there are plenty of people that have been doing this a whole lot longer yeah i also feel too is that the narrative you know running i've been doing this podcast and you try to get people on and then and then it doesn't work out and then the whole narrative switches in just like two days right like you can be on a losing streak and then there's a good game or vice versa and then my whole talking points everything is blown up and it hasn't really been that long it's been like less than 40 48 hours it's it's kind of difficult sometimes right yeah and it, that's sometimes difficult when you have like a standing uh like weekly column that you write which is what i've been doing for the cauldron where uh, the wizards article that we're going to talk about was written. Uh, 
Um, you know, sometimes you'll say, like, oh, I'm going to tackle the Wizards and why they've just been decent this year. And then all of a sudden, like, maybe they win three games in the week that you're spending mm-hmm. working on the piece. Um, that, that did not happen uh, while I was writing this one. <laughs> but uh, it, it has happened with other topics before where, you know, it sort of ruins uh, what you're planning on writing about. Oh, uh, I, I, I can I can guarantee that the Wizards have not improved too much to uh, g- go against what your premise was. And let's get into a great segue there, Jared. I, lo- I love you're a professional at this. Uh, your, your piece that you were titled in the cauldron through uh, SI, it was called The Wizards of May. Uh, May, May. Yeah, I, I, everyone... I, I will say that I don't come up with headlines, although I felt that one was appropriate. I, I used it in a hashtag uh, yesterday after the cat or two nights ago after the Cavs lost. So I will approve it as, as a Wizards uh, blogger and podcast because it has been a May season. And, and, and not to go into this, but, but uh, too far deep, I just want your opinion uh, how you came about. Uh, let's just start on a, a big sense like how you came ab- about the process of writing about the Wizards uh, and just what your premise was when you started. Um, well, the Wizards, uh, just because I love John Wall, are typically one of uh, my favorite teams to watch, even though they haven't been that exciting uh, until basically last year, uh, early on in the season, and then in the playoffs, and then, you know, in the middle, they were not that fun to watch again. Um, but this year, it's been like a real slog watching their games, you know, even though over the last few weeks, uh, John Wall has been playing better. Um, and that was sort of how the idea came to me. It was just like, you know, I usually enjoy watching them. And this year it's been, you know, terrible to watch them, basically. Um, and it's sort of fit with the things that I've been doing all during this season, which is, you know, taking sort of an in-depth look uh, at a specific team or player, uh, which I've been doing over the last few weeks. Like, I, I did Hornets, I did the Magic. Um, and then, you know, this was sort of... Uh, I, and I did the Pistons in between, too, but... Just a deep dive. So, what's that? A deep dive into each team, kind of. Right, yeah. You know, whether it's, um, you know, talking to those teams about what's going on or just sort of uh, an overarching look. If they're not, you know, in New York where, where I'm based at the time that I'm writing the post, uh, then I'll, you know, I'd, I'd prefer to talk to the teams about it. But if there's a topic that seems interesting to me and that team's not, uh, in New York at that time or any time in the near future, I'll, I'll try to look for, um, you know, things that I can say definitively, um, even without talking to the players and coaches at that time, uh, just because, you know, I don't have a travel budget. So um, there, there are things, obviously, that you can still do uh, even without talking to people. What I was really impressed by your piece is that usually anytime the national media or national type of writers go in on the Wizards, it usually pisses me off. Because they start with the narrative, or you can tell right away they haven't watched all the games, or they'll find something like an antidote and blow it up to be a bigger deal. When you're when you're so close to the team and you're blogging about, it, you're watching every game, sometimes even twice, and you're talking about, you're debating on Twitter and social media. Sometimes I get too close, I think, and that's a, sometimes I feel that there is a benefit to a national media types. And the reason I really liked your piece is, and Kelly Dwyer does a good job when he talks about the Wizards, and Zach Lowe always does a good job. I liked your pieces. You were very detailed. It made me think, like, how the hell did you have enough time to to, 
to talk. I didn't disagree with anything you said. You even dropped some notes. How did you, you even drop some data and some numbers we'll get into. But how did you have enough time to kind of be right on on the Wizards from uh, that standpoint, be so detailed? Because if someone asked me to go write about the Pacers right now, I'd have no idea. <laughs> I'd be like, Paul George has been better. Yeah. Covering <laughs> um, the game from a national perspective, obviously, is a little bit different um, than doing it from a team perspective. You know, when you're doing it for a team, you probably watch that games and that's mostly it. Um, you know, um, as as you mentioned earlier, I'm a big Knicks fan, so I watch you know not all but most of their games. Um, but you know, because I cover the the league as a whole, I don't just watch Knicks games and then assume that I'm going to know everything that I need to know about every other team. Uh, you know, I set a schedule before each month of the different games I'm going to watch uh, on each night. You know, maybe I don't necessarily watch them on that night. You know, I might come back to them on DVR. Uh, the next morning or even a week or so later. Um, but I get, you know, on average, I'd say I try to do two games a night. I'm not always successful with that. Um, I'd say probably like, you know, instead of 14 games a week, it's somewhere around 10. Um, and that helps me keep up with certain teams. And then, you know, when it falls, that teams are on my schedule multiple times in a week or two week span. That's when I like to try to, to write about that team because I see how they're playing lately. Um, you know, so this month I had watched the Wizards um, already uh, both of their games in January. Um, and then I had watched them, you know, recently uh, two or three times, I think, in the last two weeks of December as well. So I'd seen a bunch of them uh, of late. And it's a team that I, you know, tip, like I said, typically enjoy watching that I hadn't been enjoyed watching this year. Um, so that was something that had stuck in my head uh, from the start of the season, which was sort of, you know, why is it that I'm personally not enjoying this? And that <laughs> having seen those more recent games, uh, you know, allowed me to take, uh, you know, sort of that, that view of what I had seen lately and then what I had been experiencing throughout the season uh, and sort of form the, the collective narrative about the specific team. Um, you know, like you mentioned, with the Pacers, I wouldn't be able to confidently write about the Pacers right now anyway because I've only watched them, I think, once in the last two or three weeks. Uh, but when they come up more on my schedule again, then I'll be able to write about them a little bit. Uh, well, it, it's it's funny you mentioned the fun part because that has been a main takeaway of making several podcasts when just summarizing the season. It just hasn't been fun uh, from a fan. Right. That, it, that was, it just hasn't been fun or entertaining at all. Right. And that was one of the things that was supposed to be a little bit different about this season. You know, they were going to push the pace. Uh, you know, they do have a bunch of athletic guys, like especially Wall. And then, like, you know, Otto Porter told me last year that he's always considered himself, like, an, an old-school player, but he's still, like, an athletic guy to just be able to get up and down. Um, and it just sort of hasn't worked out for them uh, on that front. You know, the, the pace-pushing did not work out as planned at all. You know, uh, I think I, I included that note for the end of the story. Uh, they got outscored very badly in their first 20 games or so when they were playing at a, a pace over 100 possessions, and they, they've since slowed down a whole lot. Uh, I guess that might just make sense for, for the way that the team is constructed or coached. Uh, um, but that was something that I was looking forward to, seeing them in the open court more, and it really just didn't work. Yeah, currently we're recording this on Friday. 
uh, January 7th, I believe. The, the Wizards are currently 15 and 18. They played uh, at home tonight against the Raptors, a play tomorrow night in Orlando, and Monday uh, in Chicago against the Bulls. So just what has been your main takeaways after you have compiled all this, you've seen them recently, you you dove into the data. Well, just summarize, what were your main takeaways? Uh, what's been going on with this team this year? Well, I think the, the main takeaway, and it's the one that I discussed in the mobile detail is that they've you know been hampered a lot by injuries um uh, uh jeff Stapps, who runs the the blog industryclose.com where he backs all sorts of injury data uh posted um you know a quarter of the way through the season the teams with the most games missed due to injury uh the wizards were fourth at that time and that was you know three or four weeks ago already at this point and none of bradley deal manet or alan anderson um and anderson's been out all year none of them has played any games since then. So, you know, I would imagine they're still firmly within the top four, possibly within the top two or three. Uh, Philly is still definitely number one in, in games missed. It would be basically impossible to catch them at this point. Um, but, you know, when you're missing, you know, your starting shooting guard, um, the guy who was technically the, the backup power forward at the start of the season in MMA, but was still playing uh, an, an important role for them. And then a guy who you were counting on to be one of your sort of small ball four options along with their double start of the year. And that's three pretty big rotation pieces that you're missing. Uh, and then when you look at, you know, Gary Neal has been out for six of the last seven weeks. Uh, uh, other guys have missed games, obviously, throughout the year as well. Uh, it's, it's so many important rotation cogs, and all of a sudden, Garrett Temple's playing 38 minutes a game. Uh, Wall is basically the only true ball handler that gets in the team a lot. Uh, Ramon Sessions... Uh, can do that as well, but he's obviously not the same kind of playmaker, uh, and he doesn't get into the paint quite as much as he used to anyway. Um, it, it really affects the team's construction and what you expected to see from them. That was sort of the main takeaway I had, was that they've been affected by injuries you know, more than almost any other team. Um, you know, But injuries aren't the only thing that's gone wrong. You know, like I said, it's, it's tough to blame injuries for for Otto Porter not shooting well or not defending as well as he did uh, towards the end of last season in the playoffs. It, it's tough to blame injuries for them, you know, not working out with the, the pace pushing at the start of the year because uh, a bunch of those guys were still healthy at that point. Um, so, you know, there are, are things that have gone wrong other than that, but the, the main takeaway to me is that they haven't been healthy, and so they're behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned the injuries, and... I think they missed the fourth most games uh, of any NBA team. And like you said, Anderson, who they counted on, hasn't been there. Nene, who just came back versus the Cavs, and you saw his impact already, especially on the defensive end. Things are just a lot different when he is in there, and the defense has been an issue for the Wizards all season. Yeah, the the injuries, most of what I talked about um, was affecting the offense. But I think, especially with Nene and the bench defense, I think, uh, it's affected them there as well. You know, they, they slid back from fifth in defense last year to, I think it was, just quoting from memory, I think it was 19th or something like that uh, in defensive efficiency this year, uh, which is, you know, a big, big, big fall. Um, and, you know, when they played last year, uh, Wall, Nene, and Gortat together 
I think they were in the top two or three in defensive efficiency in the league. Um, and to not have been able to play those three guys together this year all that much has obviously affected their defense in, uh, in a bad way. Yeah, when people talk, ask me about the season, like, what's up with the Wizards? You know, why are they struggling? Why are they barely making 500? What's going on? You know, injuries, like you said, it's always it's always tough because you don't want to make them too much to be in excuses, right? But then when you say, hey, they're missing three or four rotation guys and now other people having to step up. I mean, even mentioning Kelly Oubre, who's actually surprisingly played pretty well, but throwing a twenty year, recently turned 20-year-old kid, you know, who should be a second-year guy in college into the fire, making him start right away, <laughs> you know, and expecting, and when they played a couple games with only seven guys, they actually played well, but weirdly, bizarrely, but it was the fall off of the defense. I mean, you mentioned it, they're currently 20th in defense efficiency. Last year, they were fifth. I mean, the Whitman, the reason that Whitman is still the coach and the, and the success of this team has been the development, obviously, of John Wall to be an all-star, Bradley Beal to a certain extent, you know, Nene bringing in some guys, more team-oriented kind of kind of veterans, but it has been the, the change in the culture of the defensive end, and that's where it's really been the calling card of this team. And to have it fall off so dramatically from an elite defense to just terrible, especially on the perimeter. I mean, the, uh, you know, three weeks. I've been writing about this over and over and over. They were on pace in the middle of December for the worst three-point defense in the history of the NBA. They're good. Teams were shooting 41% from three-pointers. I mean, it, it was like 45 at home. They were giving up. Teams were shooting 45% from three at home. Uh, and it's it was just absurd. Now they've they've improved that over that winning streak they had at the end of the year. And I think you actually mentioned that a little bit in your piece. How much do you think that it's hard for me to say that? How much do you think going to the new style is affecting that defense? Because I I just don't buy that it can drop dramatically drop off that much. Or what kind of do you see in the data of teams uh, when you kind of analyze other NBA teams with that kind of uh, stuff when it comes from offense to defense? Well, the, the three-point thing that you brought up is interesting because, um, you know, our friends at now on Calculus from the HP Basketball Network have done a lot of work on that area. And basically the way to prevent teams from making threes is to prevent them from taking them. Um, being able to limit attempts is much more uh, consistently correlated with success than being, being able to limit percentage because you can't, consistently force teams to shoot a bad percentage from three. Like, sometimes they're just going to knock them down. Um, you know, there was, they, they did a piece over the summer that, you know, a lot of Houston's, uh, the defense last year was based on teams breaking open three. Uh, the teams started making those more, like has happened to Houston this year, uh, your defense falls off. You know, I didn't look that deeply into Washington's defense on the, on the, the three point, the open three pointers front, um, but that, that that's something that that sticks out to me when teams are making you know like say like forty one percent from three, you know that's typically going to regress. You know it may not happen this season. Like it, it may take an, an entire year for it to come back down, and it comes back down next year. But basically, the, the way to stop teams from making threes is to stop teams from from taking them at all, rather than worrying about. Them necessarily what particular percentage you're giving up because for the most part it's, it's out of team control it's a lot of it is random yeah i asked randy women that question at a availability before the Cavs game and like what has been the change what's been the difference and randy women sometimes it's hard to tell if he's actually telling me the truth or he doesn't want to tell me the truth so 
because he just doesn't want me to know, or maybe he doesn't know. And he's like, nope, we haven't changed anything. Things are the same. And, I mean, I don't know. I think, that, you know, teams are shooting like almost 20, 17, it was like 15% uh, worse on threes over eight games. I felt like something was changing. And and, and maybe it is some something scheme-wise, but he just was he wouldn't give that up. But you're saying that, that just having them not take yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, is sometimes the way- sometimes the shots go in, and sometimes they don't. You know, even um, being able to to pick the right shooter to, to to lay off of and let that guy shoot is something that teams haven't shown the ability to consistently do. Um, Seth Portnow, who's the editor of Now Cowboys, has done some work on that as well. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is just sometimes teams are going to make shots, and sometimes they're not. Um, you know, you can you can say that you're placing more of an emphasis on defending the three-point line, um, you know, and, you know, from being uh, around the Knicks this year, that's something they said they were doing as well. But that's mostly going to reflect itself in fewer attempts rather than uh, a lower percentage. Uh, that's just the way it works out. Um, no, no team has really shown the ability to consistently force teams to shoot a lower percentage over any you know relevant period of time than any than others. Uh, that's just at least from the available data that's out there now that those guys have looked at. Um, and they're a lot smarter than me. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I mean, I embrace a- analytics, but sometimes when I get in there trying to do my own analysis, I, my mind starts going all 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 sorts of places. I'm like, oh, wow. being on the, the email thread with those nylon calculus guys. I mean, like 95 percent of the stuff they're talking about, I have no idea what it means. Uh, <laughs> but the other five percent makes me a lot smarter. So I'm, I'm thankful to be honest. With them. You're like, oh wow, I finally get that one point out of twenty. <laughs> right. No, but the thing is, too, is is that also aside from the defense dropping off, and we we built in a little bit to say, okay, it's going to drop off because they're going to play a new offensive style, right? Now the dramatic drop off is the stuff that concerns me and worries me, and I and I feel is the story of this season aside from the injuries. But the second is the offense hasn't improved. So the offense has actually gotten worse. Currently, the offense is twenty fourth in efficiency in the NBA, and last year I believe they were like nineteenth. So, uh, and you talked about a lot of this of this pay, of the pace in in your article, which I found uh, very intriguing. What did you find, or or what was when you started digging into the data of of how effective this new offensive style has been? And I think you kind of made the point is once they slowed down a little bit, they played better. Yeah, that's that's been true. I mean, over the early, it's not by that much. You know, they, at the time I wrote it, they were two games under five hundred uh, in the first. 20 games when they were playing at about 101 game, uh, they, they were two games under 500. Uh, and then once they started slowing down, they played at 500 since then. Um, so it's not all that much better. Uh, you know, on a, on a purpose basis, is a little bit. Um, but, you know, from a, a record perspective, it might have been that much better playing slower than they were early on in the year. Um, one of the things that you said I found that that didn't make it into the post was that when they were playing faster, they were turning it over a little bit more. Uh, maybe that was sort of getting used to playing at the new speed. But mm-hmm. I think it's also, um, you know, again, the guys that have been out, uh, when you're trying to push the pace and you don't have, you know, probably your best shooter to flank wall on the wing, 
Uh, they might be a little bit harder, especially because Wall loves to pick out corner shooters when he's on the break and sort of deliver those passes uh, across the court to the deal sort of streaking down into the corner. That's something that I actually talked to him about a couple of years ago um, for the, this post I did for Grantland before the playoffs um, was that, that Randy Whitman would basically tell him and Martel Webster at the time was, was playing a lot of the three for them that when Wall gets the ball in the open court, but, but, but unless you see a, a lane for a, a two-on-one, three-on-one, whatever, at the basket, that the big guys are going to fill those lanes going towards the rim. So just sprint to the corner because that's where Wall likes to deliver the ball if he's not going to take it all the way to the rim himself. Um, with, without him there to do that, you know, maybe it's Garrett Temple doing that or maybe it's Dudley doing that. And those guys are, are pretty good shooters. You know, Dudley especially is, is shooting, I think, over 45% from three. But Wall's not quite as used to playing with those guys, and they may not go to the exact same spot as Bradley Beal does who's been playing with him for, you know, four years now. Um, so that's, that's a factor into that turnovers thing a little bit as well. Yeah, Dudley seems to like the ball at the top of the kind of the top of the key for the three-pointer, um, aside from the corner. But, yes, we've seen that cross-court that cross pass that Wall makes. I've seen it a thousand times. And he, sometimes when I see it, I'm like, I, gotta, I can't continually see this. But, damn, that was amazing. Like, how did you see that guy? I mean, you're going full speed, and you just threw one across without even looking, across the court. Right on the money. <laughs> it is the pass that has that has gotten Trevor Reza paid, got Melter Webster paid, kind of resurrected Russell Butler's career. Uh, maybe we'll get Jared Dudley, you know, some open threes and paid uh, for his free agency as well. But my question is that here's another one I, I want you to answer is. Uh, Matt Moore I, I put on Twitter last night, what is more impressive, that John Wall is so awesome despite how awful the Wizards are or how, or how awful the Wizards are despite John Wall? Uh, of course, I, uh, I copped out because I said a little both, but what, what, what would you think on that one? Yeah, I think I'd go with you. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, you've got to remember also that Wall started the season not playing all that well. You know, over those first uh, 14 games or so, his shot was way off. He was turning it over more. Uh, and then over the last three or four weeks or so, he's turned it on and been basically the John Wall that we expected. Um, and, and since then, the Wizards have played a little bit better. But you got to remember, and, and I, keep, I hate to keep bringing it back to this, like they, they haven't had Nene or Brad Beal, two of their, you know, probably four or five uh, biggest rotation cogs since. I think Beal went out on December 9th, um, and the May was out for even two weeks before that. Um, so I, I guess it's it's more impressive that Wall has been this good while the Wizards have been so, you know, relentlessly average. Um, just because you know when you're when you're missing big guys like that, it, it's tough to expect the team to play. Um, you know, even up to the standard they did last year, which. Like I said uh, early on in the piece, you know they were only a slightly above average team by their point differential last year. They they outscored I think their opponents by something like point seven points per game, which is basically you know it's a forty three win team. Um, you know they've been a little bit worse than that this year uh, in terms of their record, but they've been much worse in terms of their point differential overall. Um, and I think a lot of that basically just has to do with their. Been different guys, 
it's it's tough to keep going back to that one point, but it's it's really relevant, you know. Um, people might call it an excuse, uh, but you know, look at a team like I think. I mean, look at you know, it's not the same level, but look at Oklahoma City last year. You know, they were in the same zone and and Westbrook for large portions of the season, and they were significantly worse than they were in previous years. They still wound up winning, you know. 45 games or whatever, because Westbrook is a superhuman cyborg, but um, when you're missing multiple guys, I think it affects you just as much, even if they're not quite as good as uh, a guy like KD is. Yeah, I think I think some of the part of the, the, the point differential is the Wizards have had a lot of blowout losses, especially in November. They're really terrible. Yeah. I mean, that would make it not fun because not the way they lose, they go up to Boston and be over in the second quarter. You're just like, what the hell? You know, they lose by 35 points and it'd be just really bad. We've all already seen they got smoked by the Heat the other night, and that was a really poor game. They couldn't make a shot. Uh, and I think that was where it was really depressing early on about this season. Now, once John Wall came back and became John Wall the All-Star, player of the month of December, they were competitive. And I think that goes into what Matt Moore's question is, is now they're competitive, but now John Wall's awesome and they're still kind of meh, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, that's something, that detail was something that made it in there, too. You know, typically uh, blowing things out and not getting blown out uh, is more indicative of a good team than necessarily winning all of your close games. Uh, over time, you know, teams are tend are going to tend to be at or near 500 uh, in, in close games because a lot of it is, you know, random luck of the draw, who gets the bounces, who gets the call, things like that. Uh, but if you can consistently beat teams by double digits and not get beat by double digits, that's more likely to show how good you are. Uh, and and heading into uh, what is now last night. Uh, lost to Cleveland, they had only had six blowout wins and 11 blowout losses. So almost double times they've been blown out, you know, quote-unquote blown out, not as, you know, based on how teams go at the end, you know, they might not have actually been blowouts, but, you know, still sort of shorthand for it. Um, so that that's something that's, you know, not necessarily a good indicator. Uh, and, and then it was, you know, also the... The strangest thing to me was that they were only five and four against below five hundred teams. Uh, you know, not even necessarily always beating the team that they're quote unquote supposed to be. Um, you know, that they had only played nine games against those teams, I think, is something that uh, will help them out the rest of the way because they've played a lot more games against teams above five hundred, and that's something that I mentioned at the end of the post too that they played the third toughest schedule so far and only have the 23rd toughest the rest of the way. Um, so that should help too. Uh, you know, once they get more games against below 500 teams, maybe they will start getting more of those double-digit wins fewer of those double-digit losses. Well, that's what contributes to the bizarreness in, of this season is they beat the Spurs at home, obviously with Bradley Beal on an on a awesome shot. But they've won in Miami. They've, they're the only team to win in Cleveland this season. <laughs> but yeah, they've been blown out by the Celtics twice, <laughs> like in in Boston. Right. <laughs> Celtics, Celtics are a bet. Yes, a pretty good team. Yes, and they're sort of. They're also a team that, are, that is very well set up for regular season success uh, because they have such a a deep crew of players that all have sort of similar overall skill level. 
So in any given game, you can just use the one to present the, the best matchup. Uh, and, and especially when a team is thin because of injuries, uh, you can really take advantage of their weaknesses in that specific game, which I think is something that contributed to uh, to Boston being in by double digits twice. So what what do you see for the future of this team for this season? I know you mentioned you mentioned that they've had uh, a tough schedule so far and that they play a lot more bad teams coming up. Once again, I don't know if that is a good or a bad. It should be a good thing on paper. Sometimes the Wizards would have played down in the John Wall era, played down in the competition once they start being a better team. Realistically, what kind of outcome should the Wizards five seed, six seed, eight yeah, I mean, seed? I think at this point, at this point, I think that they're going to be you know fighting for one of the lower end playoff spots. You know, they're uh, when I wrote the post, they were I think two and a half games. Out of the eighteen, you know, that's, that's a lot of time to make up that ground. Um, you know, depending on when Beal gets back, you know, like you said, when they came back uh, against Cleveland, already made, you know, a little bit of a difference at least. That should definitely help. The fact that they're not playing quite as tough a schedule should definitely help. I would expect them to make the playoffs just because, you know, I think that the, the actual strength of their team is better than they've been so far and better than the teams that are currently at the bottom of the playoff bracket. You know, I was really high on them coming into the year. You know, obviously that was assuming sort of full health, uh, which they haven't had so far. But I would think that, you know, if they can go seven or eight games above 500 the rest of the way, that would get them to like 43, 44 wins. And I would think that that would be enough for a, a lower half of the bracket playoff spot. I don't expect necessarily the eight feet in the East to have 45 wins like that on pace four right now. Um, you know, if that happens, then they, then they might miss out. Like I said, they would need to go 30 and 20 the rest of the way to reach 45 wins, and they already lost uh, last night, so now it would have to be 30 and 19. Uh, but if they can win, you know, 27, 28, 29 games, I think they'll be able to get in with a, you know, 6, 7, 18, somewhere around there. Uh, if they do better, then obviously they'll move up. And, and it wouldn't surprise me that much to see them do a little bit better than that, provided everybody gets healthy and stays healthy. I could see them going on a little bit of a run, but uh, barring that, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a fight for them to get into the bracket at this point, just because of, of where they are at this point in the season and how well they need to play uh, the rest of the way to, to hit the benchmarks that it looks like you're going to need to get in. Yeah, currently, you know, let's, let's just throw the Sixers out, the Nets out. I'll even throw the Bucks out at fourteen twenty-three. Right now, the Wizards are 15 and 18 with the, the winning percentage uh, that puts them in 12th in the East. But they have 18 losses, but the Heat in the third place have 14 losses. So basically, you can kind of see, you know, maybe one of those teams will pull away to the, you know, the Hawks or maybe the Heat. Maybe even Toronto will kind of pull away, distance themselves and kind of solidify a third or fourth seed. But you're looking at maybe six or seven teams to fight for four or five spots, don't you, don't you believe? Right, yeah, the the three to twelve seeds are separated by five games total. You know that's not um, the, the fifty games to play. That's not that many, right? <laughs> right. The uh, the point differentials paint a little bit of a different picture, and Washington is is way behind there. You know, out of that group of teams, um, but that that's something that could rebound as they start getting their guys back. Uh, I mean, I I hate to keep bringing that one point up, but it's it's so relevant just because 
you know, their, their second or second best player is not out there. Their third or fourth or fifth, whatever you want to consider, Nene, uh, was not out there for a while uh, until uh, the most recent game. Um, you know, I, I think they can get in. I think they will get in. Uh, but it's going to be tough just because of the how far behind they are right now. You know, two and a half games is not a lot. But it's not like, you know, there's, there's nobody ahead of them. You know, you've got to jump four teams to get into the playoffs at this point. Uh, and it's not like those teams are just going to roll over and die. Yeah, my concern is with the wear and tear that's happening to John Wall, that he has to play an all-star level just for them to be competitive. And then also, what if Bradley Beal doesn't come back? or he's hobbled more, and then now this is just a mulligan on the season. Whitman, the executives, everyone just gets a mulligan, and now we're going to do this all again next year. Uh, and, you know, Kevin Durant stays in Oklahoma City, and then what are the Wizards doing? But anyway, there will be many podcasts to talk about that. But before I know you got to go here in a little bit, but I wanted, since you're a, you're a Knicks fan, uh, KS Life, uh, how how's your KS Life experience been, uh, Mr. Kevin Serafin? <laughs> He's a really funny dude. Uh, just <laughs> listening to him in the locker room sometimes, and like you could tell, like all the guys like him a lot too. Like he's always, you know, just like he did uh, in Washington, uh, like taking stupid pictures for his Instagram account with all the guys. <laughs> and like he loves KP. Like he'll always be yelling across the locker room, like KP in his, you know, his French accent. Um, it's funny. He's he's a good dude. I like. Him. How about I was a basketball player? How those double teams treating you when he, when he gets double teamed? <laughs> as a basketball player, um, his success on the court is entirely dependent on whether or not his hook shot goes in. Yes. Um, because that's the only thing he can do. Um, he's actually one of the few guys that can take a hook shot with both hands. Yes. Uh, yeah. But once the ball goes on the floor... Uh, he's taking that hook shot. Like, there's no chance it's going anywhere else. Like, he, he might pass before he dribbles, but if he dribbles, there's a 0% chance that he's passing. You know, I don't have the actual data on it, but I would bet that he's thrown zero passes after <laughs> more than one dribble uh, during this season. Um, and then sort of, you know, Fisher uh, does not really set him up for success when he puts him out there as the only big man on the court because he just can't play defense at all. Uh, and then, you know, the Knicks get killed when he throws that lineup out there. Um, so, good guy, not necessarily a very effective basketball player. So, yeah, so how is, do you see him becoming, as the Knicks go for a playoff spot, is he a rotation guy, second unit? Because the thing is, I, the thing is about Seraphin, he's very seductive in a way where all of a sudden, he'll, like you mentioned, there'll be a left hook shot. There'll be eight, four or five buckets in a row in the second unit, and you're like, wow, like, you know, a big guy gets in foul trouble. Here comes Seraphin. He's hitting that, he's hitting that mid-range jumper. He's making a couple moves here and there, and you're like, whoa, like, a guy that talented, I mean, that big, with, with such a soft touch is very rare in the NBA, and then he'll just disappear the next time. You, you kind of count on him. That, that has been my experience with Kevin. Yeah, I mean, it's over the last week and a half or so, he's fallen out of the rotation entirely. Fisher has sort of trimmed things down, only playing eight or nine guys on any given night. Um, and I think that's the right move. And I think that him not being one of those eight or nine guys is also the right move. Um, you know, you can't, at this point, I don't, 
don't think you can really play good defense uh, with him on the floor, especially if he's the only big man. Um, and then if he's not the only big man, I think it hurts your offense a little bit. Um, you know, to have him and Robin Lopez out there is not necessarily a good combination on that end of the floor, uh, just because neither of them can really stretch out farther than 12 or 15 feet or so. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of where Carmelo likes to operate. So, uh, I, I don't think he's going to wind up, uh, back in the rotation anytime soon. Um, that could change if Fisher decides to start playing, uh, 10 or 11 guys again, like he was earlier in the year. Uh, then I would think that either him or Kyle O'Quinn uh, will sneak back in, uh, probably and preferably O'Quinn, but you never know. You know, he randomly benched O'Quinn or Seraphin for like eight or nine games earlier in the season. The <laughs> uh, Seraphin flip shot going in. Uh, who the hell knows? Uh, but at, at this point, with the way they're playing well over these last four or five games or so, uh, they won three out of the last four on a, on a tough. Uh, swing that they're on right now. They've been playing 11 straight games uh, against teams that are over 500. Uh, you know, the, the last one was against the Spurs tonight. Um, I don't think that they're going to alter the rotation that much anytime soon unless they start playing significantly worse, uh, which you would think with the schedule softening a little bit compared to what it's been recently uh, would not necessarily be the case, but this is the mix, so who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel some veiled shots at uh, Derek Fisher's coaching uh, through through your answer there. <laughs> oh, I mean, I've seen no secret of the fact that I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of his coaching style. Yes. He's definitely been much better, uh, especially in terms of managing the rotation lately. Um, and also in terms of just little things like he went to Jaron Grant during the game uh, a few games ago and said, look, they're cutting off all these triangle passes. Uh, call for more picks and run more pick and roll. Uh, and that worked out really well. He got uh, a basket of his own, plus two baskets uh, for Porter Zingas on three out of pick and rolls. So little tweaks like that, I think he's been better over the last you know two, three weeks or so. Um, but, you know, I've, I've made no secret that I'm not hugely high on him, but he's definitely gotten better uh, lately. Whether that's fit, we'll see. Um, he has shown in the past that he'll sort of change everything at a moment's notice. Um, that's basically the only thing that stayed consistent through his, his time with the team so far is that guys can just sort of have their playing time yanked around um, seemingly sort of willy-nilly. Uh, but over the last couple of weeks, it's been more consistent, so we'll see if that sticks. Well, enjoy your time with KS Life because the guy means well. He's got positive energy all the time, and he's you know sometimes I roll my eyes at the stuff that he would do online, but it was always in good spirits and good fun, and a lot more entertaining when you're you know covering a, a blogging about a team. Uh, my my last thing to you is I know you contributed to a Jeremy Lin book. Uh, can you just talk about that to the people and about insanity and that experience and what came about all that? Yeah, um, the book was called We'll Always Have Insanity. Uh, it was more about uh, that ridiculous season than, than about uh, Jeremy Lin himself. Um, the, 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 the other people that wrote it were um, Mike Carrillo, Robert Silverman, and Jim Cavan from uh, Knickerbocker, Seth Rosenthal from Posting and Posting, uh, Jamie O'Brady, who now runs The Cauldron, uh, Jake Appleman from 
Fun Magazine, Dan Whitman, who runs the, the Mix Fan blog, and I'm almost positive on, oh, and Jason Concepcion, uh, my, my friend from, from Grantland and from yes. elsewhere, um, we all contributed to that together. Um, a bunch of it was, you know, reproduced and slightly edited stuff that we wrote during the season that we included in the book. And then each of us wrote sort of one new chapter specifically for the book after the season. You know, I wrote about how that was uh, the Knicks' best defensive team since Chef Van Gundy left. And that was really what carried them. Uh, even through the, the stretch where, where Jeremy was playing, you know, unbelievable, the team's offense was not at all that good. Um, they were they were really carried by the fact that uh, Tyson Chandler and Jared Jeffries and Munch Shumpert and all of these guys were playing like incredible defense. You know, during that one stretch, there were like a top five defense in the league or something like that. Um, that, that was, you know, my additional chapter that I wrote afterward. Uh, but it was, it was really fun to work on and, you know, especially to, to work with those guys who are, you know, now some of my uh, better friends in the business uh, four or five years later, whatever it is. Um, it was awesome, uh, especially that season, just experiencing everything that happened was, was sort of surreal. You know, I would be talking to those guys, you know, uh, on Gchat or at a bar or wherever about how, like, we don't even want to talk about stuff because we're afraid of jinxing it. Like, that's how <laughs> sick in the head that Nick fans are because nothing good ever happens to us. And, you know, we'd be talking about stuff and we'd be like, we can't talk about this kid, but, like, because it's going to go away. Um, you know, obviously at a certain point it did because he got hurt and then he left and blah, blah, blah. Um, but just experiencing that in real time was, like, the most surreal uh, experience I've ever had as a Nick fan. It was... It was like you were floating on, on cloud nine while being injected with euphoria. And like, I, I can't even describe what it felt like. Um, and then, you know, the, the book sort of spiraled out of that experience of, of watching that season. Um, Jim and, and Mike and Bob uh, were the guys that, that approached me initially about coming on to the project with them. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, Right when I got that email from them, like, hey, do you want to help us out with this? I was trying to figure out a way to do the same thing and, like, write down <laughs> a list of people that would have wanted to be involved in it. And, you know, obviously those guys were all on that list as well. Um, so it worked out really well. And it worked definitely worked out better that they were the ones that reached out first uh, because they did uh, most of the heavy lifting there and I just had to write, uh, which worked out pretty well. <laughs> you can just piggyback to all their uh, hard work, right, and effort. Yeah, they, they did a lot of the hard work in terms of the organizing and the editing and uh, working with the publisher uh, to get the, the thing out and to, to, do, to do the layout and the cover and everything like that. Um, you know, my hat's off to them. I couldn't have dealt with all the crap that they dealt with, uh, but they did, and it, it came out, and I still get my $6 check or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll compl- um, meet. Um, I was know, talking about that. We got our first printing, but obviously have dropped off since then uh, considerably. Well, maybe but, this conversation can help uh, plug plug the Amazon sales. I'll, I'll definitely link it in the show notes. In, uh, and, oh, and yeah. Go to, uh, go to Amazon. We'll always have Lynn Sanity. Uh, or you can search for my name or any of our names, and it'll definitely come up on our author pages as well. 
the other reason I want to bring this up, aside from you know highlighting that awesome, awesome project you were involved with, is that the Wizards connection here. So the John Wall right. it actually started in 2010 in the Summer League when Jeremy Lin was with Golden State, and it was the first game of John Wall uh, uh, after he was drafted number one overall for Washington. We're all s- stoked. It was on NBA TV. I know Kyle Weedai, who I work with, uh, his, this is his side truth about it, who I work with. Uh, he was there, you know, pumped, hyped, and it ends up being. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, like, who's this undrafted dude from Harvard going toe-to-toe with the number one pick of the NBA in the fourth quarter? Now, you know, Lynn, no one really remembers that. Yeah, that was different. That that I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a you know, at, crossover, I think, right? That specific game in the book. Um, is... And then, you know, before the game uh, in the early part of the Lynn stretch when the Knicks played the Wizards, I think it was the third game or so. Um, you know, people were talking about that that summer league game and how they, it was uh, all this rematch and blah blah blah. Um, and then you know, Lynn was incredible in that game, um, and Shumpert uh, especially did a good job guarding Wall, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then at one point late in the game, um, you know, sort of like the not the first. Like ridiculous moment of insanity, but definitely one of the more memorable ones. Uh, he crossed wall up near midcourt and then just threw down like this thunder dunk. I think <laughs> people were like, "What? Like, can I curse?" Yes. What the? <laughs> they were like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> <laughs> this is when you're still floating. This is the floating part you're talking about, right? What's that? The floating part you were talking about earlier, like just oh, floating. Oh yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> It was absurd. Um, you know, obviously there were plenty of uh, you know memorable moments both before and after that. You know, on that that game-winning shot against the Raptors, literally everything he, he did in the game against the Lakers at the Garden. Um, but that, that that moment was one of the first ones where people were like, I mean, holy crap! You know, like it was the, the first two games were against the the, the Nets and the Jazz. Uh, um, Remembering correctly from my memory, you know, this, he sort of snuck up in the first game, and in the second one, they were like, "Oh, this kid can't do anything." And then all of a sudden, he's going against John Wall and holding his own, and more. Uh, it was, it was, it was surreal. I mean, that's that's really the only way to describe it. Was even even all these years later, four or five years, whatever it is, I still sort of can't believe that that stuff actually happened. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The only reason I would bring that up is I was at that game. I was covering the, covering that exact game for, uh, it was February 8, 2012. I was covering Four Truth About It. And it, before I went back in to, to read what I wrote before this interview, just to recollect, because all I really remembered was the dunk you mentioned. And I remembered the crowd, right? So we're in Chinatown. But at this point, it's not really that many, Chi- it's not like New York Chinatown. Right, like they have some Chinese stuff here and there, and there is a little small Chinese community, but it's nowhere near what is like in New York or San Francisco. But it is still called Chinatown, yeah. right? In 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 Washington D.C., in where the Verizon Center is, they still celebrate the Chinese New Year. We have a Chinese New Year game every year, and there is Asian people all over the place, and it's not just like Chinese or Taiwanese. We're talking like. Koreans and and Japanese and like it was like all of a sudden they had embraced Jeremy Lin and they're in the crowd cheering for him and I re- I went back to to read what I wrote and that's what I was remarking on like all the signs all the jerseys and this was Game Three of Linsanity so it was it was the beginning of where this was headed 
correct? And that was yeah. the thing that that, that, that really, like, that really was, stood uh, out. At the time, I was living uh, about a block away from Chinatown in New York. I was living downtown. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, there were, you know, tons of, of those, like, orange uh, Jeremy Lin shirt jerseys on like, <laughs> everybody over there. Like, I used to go, <laughs> excuse me, grab, grab sushi from a place around the corner. Um, and literally just everywhere, there were orange Jeremy Lin shirt jerseys. Um, and, and Jason, I thought, Concepcion, uh, who was Filipino, had a, had a really unique perspective um, on experiencing Jeremy Lin as an Asian American. Um, and Danny Chow, who, wrote, who at the time wrote for Harvard Proxism and you know has since gone on to, to Grantland and other places, he wrote this incredible piece for Harvard Proxism at the time uh, about you know the experience of watching Jeremy Lin as an Asian American as well. And there were, there were I just remember reading so many of those at that time. And thinking like just how cool it must have been for those guys to to finally see somebody, you know that that looked like them in the NBA. You know, most of the NBA, um, you know, is, is is black guys. Um, you know, even when I was a kid, I remember thinking like, oh, that's you know, uh, that's Chris Moore and a white guy looks just like me can play with guys in the NBA. It's cool. You know, it's, obviously there are a lot more white guys than there are uh, Asian Americans or, you know, straight people that aren't necessarily Asian-American, just Asian, period. Um, but, but, you know, when you see someone that looks like you doing your favorite sport, it's awesome. And it was, I remember just being incredibly moved by a lot of those pieces and just feeling awesome for those guys to, to finally be able to see that. And that was sort of the, you know, even apart from the basketball stuff, that was like the overriding, um, like, amazing thing about that run that he went on was what he did for, Asians and Asian Americans, and, and you know, in terms of, of basketball. Oh, the culture angle is pretty damn fascinating, and that's what I, that's what stands out because I saw that happening, like saw it fueling, and then he kept balling out, right? And then he kept doing it, and so it just kept going and going and going, and and that was at the beginning. And the other part that stood out too was the media. Okay, so so Yi Yi played for the Wizards, and so I've had experience with the Chinese media and how all the different outlets. But I, this was nothing I'd never seen before because it was such the beginning. Like you mentioned, he had what played the Jazz and the Nets. It was such the beginning. Here he goes. Now he's playing against John Wall, the number one pick. He balls out. They win the game. They actually did. Melo and Amari didn't even play that game, which I didn't. I totally forgot. Well, that about. was sort of the the thing that fueled the whole stretch. Was he had to do so much because they were both out. Yeah. Um, I think Amari was out starting with the first game, and then Mel got hurt early on in the second game. Um, so basically, the whole stretch, they were both out. And he's sitting there playing with like Tyson Chandler, Steve Novak, Derek Jeffries, Schumpert. Uh, I can't even, honestly can't even remember uh, who else was, was still on the team at that time. Tony Douglas. Um, it, was, it, was, it was absurd stuff. Yeah, Steve Nodak was in a bunch of threes against the Wizards. That's what happened in that game as well. Uh, but the thing is about the media is that... Yeah, so they, Nodak hit four threes, but that was like, nine games fresh in the rest of the <laughs> And he's still getting paid because of that, probably? <laughs> yeah, I mean, between that and, like, J.R. Smith randomly loving to pass to Steve Nodak, which is, like, the weirdest thing ever. Uh, that, that, that got Nodak uh, to stick around the NBA for four or five more years. <laughs> the thing is, is that you, you know, you've interviewed NBA players and you've been in locker rooms. And so you, you wait for them to shower, you wait around their stall, even the, the, the main players. No, Jeremy Lin, 
took forever, and they brought him out in the hallway after D'Antoni got done with this conference because there were so many, you know, living in Washington, D.C. with international, you know, culture and media presence, there were so many uh, Asian uh, media outlets and just and just media outlets in general. And they had – I'd never seen it so packed. I mean, there was guys asking, but then you had, like – it was funny. It was then out of nowhere. You'd have someone just just ask like a pop culture question. <laughs> like it was like, like, they, like they stopped. Like the Asian dude would just start asking his thoughts about you know Kim Kardashian. I think it was Kim Kardashian or Kobe. It was something bizarre and weird. And me and me and Kyle looked at each other like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? This is nothing we've ever seen before. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, wild. Like I actually wasn't at any of the games during that stretch. Uh, but I was at the game the next season uh, when he came back uh, with Houston for the first time. And even that was, like, absurd. Like, just so much more than I've ever seen in the visiting locker room. Like, even when LeBron comes to town, like, there were more people there, I think, for Jeremy Lin's first game back uh, than I'd ever seen. Uh, and, and literally just everybody hounding and hounding and crowding all around his locker. Um, it was nuts. Like, I was all the way across the locker room, basically, while while trying to hear what he was saying. Um, it was insane. No, you've you've mentioned floating. You have mentioned surrealness. You have mentioned you didn't want to talk about how good things were going because you want to jinx it with your buddies. Is it going to take you a few years later to kind of look back at this in and put it more in perspective? Or has it been? Well, that, I, do you need more? The, yeah, yeah, do, yeah, yeah. Do you need more years? Like you mentioned, it being surreal and not jinxing with your buddies. Do you need a few more years to look back at this all and kind of try to figure out what it all meant? <laughs> or just maybe you'll never will. Yeah, I don't know if I ever will. Like really get a handle on you know, what it all meant and what it all felt like. Um, just because, in, like, like I said, in the time that it was happening. Like, we couldn't believe that it was actually happening. And, like, even even looking back now a few years later, like, I still can't believe that it actually happened. Um, you know, maybe there will come a time where I've seen, you know, other, um, you know, similar stuff enough times. And, like, I don't know if there will ever be something similar happen uh, uh, in the NBA ever. Um but, you know, maybe maybe there will be a time when I have sort of the proper perspective to really get a handle on, on what it was and what it meant. Um, but I, I know that it's still not now. You know, I still don't think that I have sort of uh, even trying to put into words how I can't put it into words is difficult, uh, is, is, the way that would, is the way that I would describe it right now. Maybe years from now when you contribute to the 30 for 30 doc on it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was actually a documentary um, Sanity that was made. Um, you know, they were working on it while when Sanity was happening. Oh, wow. Um, Brian Yang is on the show Hawaii Five O and is also a producer. Uh, he's produced a, a few different documentaries, actually. Uh, I've gotten uh, friendly with him over the last few years. Um, he, he and uh, his filmmaking partner, uh, Daniel Lum, uh, who directed the movie, um, they were working on that while it was happening. Like, before it was happening, they were working on this documentary about Jeremy's experiences uh, in, in college and in the NBA, and then all of a sudden, 
everything blows up. Um, and so that, that documentary exists. You can watch on Netflix uh, called Insanity about like his road to the NBA, his road in the early part of the NBA. Um, you know, that, that meeting with Mike D'Antoni that everybody talks about, about how to get cut. Um, that, that's all covered in there. And then, of course, like his, his ridiculous rise uh, and everything that happened uh, before and after, everything that happened up until the point when he left the Knicks. Uh, that was, you know, they had already been, been done making the film at that point. But it's, it's a really, really, I think, uh, an interesting documentary. I wrote, I did an interview with those guys for Grantland a few years ago when it came out. Um, they're rough. Um, so that, that actually does, not a 30-30, but a documentary on everything that happens and actually does already exist, and you can watch it for free if you have a Netflix. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Sounds sounds pretty interesting. You know what just came to me? The question, it was Tim Tebow. <laughs> Someone yelled Tim Tebow at him. <laughs> I mean, being, that's what it was. It was a yeah, Kardashian. I, remember, Tim I don't remember. I was like, somebody wrote something at the time about how he was different uh, than Tim Tebow. Because like, he was actually playing well. Um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. Well, Jared, I've already took you past the time allotted, uh, but I think that that's some good stuff on insanity. Yeah, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm gonna we'll link all these things in the show notes. Hopefully, I can get you a, a, a bump and some book sales, and and also you know thank you so much for joining me. And your piece on the Wizards is pretty excellent, and hopefully the next piece you write will be about their awesome resurgence. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I hope so too. Thanks a lot for having me, man. I appreciate it. Where, where can the people find you before I let you go? Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at JAHuban5. Uh, you can find my work at The Cauldron and it was illustrated at Bleach Report. I also do uh, NFL and occasionally NBA for CBSSports.com. And, you know, you never know. I may pump, pop up at a bunch of other places before the end of this podcast, too. Who knows? <laughs> hey, man, get that get that paper. You know, uh, uh, you, you got to make a living out there in the, these streets. <laughs> yep, that's true. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it.